This is The Facebook Files, a series from The Journal. We're looking deep inside Facebook through its own internal documents. If you haven't already heard our earlier episodes, start there. They're already in your feed. Over the course of this series, we've examined a lot of Facebook documents. Those documents laid out how Facebook created secret rules that favored elites. They were literally applying a lower standard to the people who, when they misbehaved, it was most dangerous. They've revealed that its platforms can have a dangerous effect on teen mental health. Page nine of this document says, we make body image issues worse for one in three teen girls. That drug cartels and human traffickers use its services openly. They realize is that kind of the entire ecosystem of, of a human trafficking ring could exist on Facebook. And how its algorithm fosters discord. The most explosive finding was just how harmful certain aspects of this algorithm change were and how much Facebook knew it. These documents also show that inside Facebook, the company knows it hasn't told the public the full story. And the line there was that, importantly, it is a breach of trust. We are not actually doing what we say we do publicly. Behind the release of these documents is a person. Up to this point, this person has wanted to stay anonymous. But now she's decided to come forward and reveal her identity. So I went to a recording studio to meet her. She arrived in all black, carrying a can of Diet Coke. Okay, everybody's giving the thumbs up. Cool. Um, I'm going to do the sound. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, nice. So can you introduce yourself? Sure. Um, So my name is Frances Haugen. Frances Haugen. Frances is 37 years old. She left Facebook in May after two years with the company. During her time there, she learned information she believed needed to be made public. So earlier this year, she gathered internal Facebook documents that ultimately went to Congress, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and the Wall Street Journal. She also applied for federal whistleblower protection. And now, she's ready to talk. The thing I want everyone to know is that Facebook is far, far more dangerous than anyone knows, and it is getting worse. We can't expect it to fix itself on its own. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. This is The Facebook Files, part six. Coming up on the show, a conversation with Francis Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower. This episode is brought to you by Global X ETFs. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. Frances Haugen grew up in Iowa. Her father was a doctor and her mother a college professor. 
I grew up in a house full of books, like so many books that there were bookshelves in the bathrooms. I'm, I'm very good at math. Like I love math. I love numbers. I love just sitting around thinking about numbers. And that gave me a lot of opportunities. I went to Massachusetts for college. I then got hired by Google straight off college. was there working on search for years. And um, I ended up at Facebook eventually working on civic misinformation. You also have been a ranger at Burning Man? I am. I am a Burning Man ranger. So, so, What's that like? So I, I like to go to Burning Man. I've been many, many, many times. Burning Man is a very hard place to be. It's hot. It's dusty. People often there for weeks setting up things. Sometimes tempers can flare. And our job is to come and step in. It's like being a Boy Scout, only sometimes you get to, like, drive vehicles. Frances has worked at some of the biggest companies in Silicon Valley. She started out at Google, but has also worked at Pinterest, Yelp, and the dating app Hinge. In June of 2019, she started at Facebook. Do you remember your first day there? I do. So things I remember about my first day are, um, I remember looking at my badge photo, and it just represented so much hope to me. I just remember how much pride I felt. And I remember walking into the space, and the Facebook office is a remarkable building. It takes 10 or 15 minutes to walk from one end to the other. The ceilings are three stories tall. It's incredibly wide. Half the building's laid out kind of like a little village, like the office rooms are scattered, and the, the hallways zig back and forth. Francis joined a team at Facebook called Civic Integrity, also known as the Civic Team. This was a group of a couple hundred people, and they studied how harm was caused on Facebook by anyone from human traffickers to conspiracy theorists. And this team also had to find solutions. So the, the sphere of influence of civic integrity was to make sure that Facebook is a positive impact in society. Francis had been hired as a product manager, or PM, focused specifically on civic misinformation, content about politics and society that was misleading or fake. Frances says she had a personal reason for wanting to combat misinformation. I joined Facebook because someone I was incredibly close to, who was really important to me, I lost them to misinformation on the internet. And I never want anyone to feel the pain that I felt. Frances says their friendship started to fall apart during the 2016 presidential election. Her friend eventually severed ties with Frances and left San Francisco. In 2016, you know, he was a little disillusioned after Bernie lost the, the nomination. And he was susceptible to misinformation on the Internet. He got really, really radicalized. And I don't blame Facebook for what happened to him. Like, I blame more like 4chan and Reddit. But he was making crazy claims about, you know, George Soros, you know, running the world economy and things like that. Things that are just super easy to invalidate. And when I would send him these things, like to give you a sense of how much misinformation on the internet can twist people, he would say things to me like, do you read your own citations? All of these references are to the mainstream media. How can you possibly believe them? So what did you hope to accomplish at Facebook? I wanted to make the problem even a little bit less bad. So Francis got to work. At the outset, she said she was hopeful that she could have a positive impact. I know that I have special skills. This will be my fourth social network I've worked at. I am a ranking specialist. Like, I'm specifically deep in the algorithms, like the code of how do we choose what content to show people. I know I can make a difference on civic misinformation. So when did your sense that you could really make a difference start to change? Almost immediately. Like within a month of joining Facebook, 
I was very skeptical of our ability to actually make the impact. So I assumed I was coming into it like civic misinformation. You must already have a team. Like 2016 happened three years ago, right? So I come in, I showed up, and I found out my entire team was brand new. Facebook had studied civic misinformation before, but there hadn't been a dedicated team on it until Frances started. She was put in charge of a small group of around four engineers and data scientists. And straight away, she says she felt there were unrealistic expectations about what her team could accomplish. The first big project that I worked on at Facebook was around narrowcast misinformation. Narrowcast misinformation is when a party, like, for example, this project was inspired by Russia. They had found that Russia was targeting specific sensitive populations in the United States, like environmentalists, African-American activists, police officers, and sending them misinformation. And while Facebook had known this was a possible problem since 2016, it's a very hard problem. The project Francis was working on was to help stop a repeat of this in the 2020 election. And so the first thing we developed was a way to segment the U.S. population into sub-communities in a privacy-conscious way. And so we developed a way to, based on people's engagement with different kinds of topics, segment the United States so we could then look at how was information being directed to each of those 600 subpopulations. And, you know, as we worked on this project, like, my manager told me it had to be done within 12 weeks. And I was like, that is unrealistic. I told my manager almost immediately, this team is not being set up for success. I was told at Facebook, people do remarkable things with far less resources than anyone expected. Make it work. Facebook spokesman Andy Stone said the company has invested in people and technology to keep its platform safe, and that the company has made fighting misinformation and providing authoritative information a priority. That narrowcast project that Francis was working on was part of a much bigger effort going on inside Facebook, something that was known internally as a lockdown. So at Facebook, there have been certain moments of inflection in the company's history. So like when they realized that they weren't on mobile, they did a lockdown that was a mobile lockdown. Or at some point they did an Android lockdown because they'd always just focused on iPhones. And they were like, oh no, there's so many Android phones in the world. Gotta, gotta get on Android. And so they've had these, these inflection points and a very small number, like maybe up to that point, five or six. And they did a lockdown for the 2020 election. They'd done basically a war game for the 2020 election saying what could go off the rails. And they went and assessed what were all the vulnerabilities for Facebook. And they made a grid. So imagine across the top, you have a column for Facebook, you have a column for Messenger, you have a column for Instagram, WhatsApp, ads. And in the rows, they picked the 10 biggest threats. And then they colored in those squares. The top 10 threats included things like hate speech, misinformation, harassment, impersonation, and voter suppression. So maybe across the squares, there's 70 squares, 60 squares. There were so many red squares. So the entire thing was either red or yellow, so there's no green. There's so many red squares, they had to have two colors of red to differentiate between the red ones that they couldn't address during lockdown and the ones they were going to focus on during lockdown. And at that point, I was like, oh, my God, we're a year out from the election, and, like, this is how bad it is? Like, this is a problem. You mentioned that as a moment that shifted your feelings. Totally. Why? How so? Why? Just seeing all those oh, red yeah. squares? Oh, yeah. The two colors of red squares. It's like, we have so much red. We have to have two colors of red. There's angry red and the normal red. Frances says that she saw that grid of angry red squares 
as emblematic of a choice Facebook had made as a company. Given that Facebook has underinvested in us so much, so much, like we could have had 10 times as many people working on it. And then we could have addressed all the red squares. We could have addressed every one of those red squares, but Facebook wants to make, you know, $80 billion a year. What if it had made $2 billion less last year, but we had had a safe democracy? Like who gets to make that choice? Right now it's Facebook and the shareholders. Facebook spokesman said that hosting harmful or hateful content is bad for its community, bad for advertisers, and ultimately bad for its business. Meanwhile, Frances says she was learning about the impact misinformation was having outside of the U.S. from other teams within civic integrity. I used to go to this meeting called Virality Review. Virality Review was run by the Social Cohesion Team. So the Social Cohesion Team was focused on areas that were at risk for genocide. And so the virality review was of content that was going viral in, quote, at-risk countries. And so people who actually are exposed to content from those markets would pull up the top 10 posts in each of those markets that had gone viral that week. And they'd explain the reason each post had gone viral. And it's just horrific content. You know, it's severed heads. It's horrible, like, One of the red flags for a society that is at risk for ethnic cleansing is you start comparing people to insects. Like, this ethnic group is cockroaches because it dehumanizes them so you can then kill them. So imagine you're going to this meeting every other week and every single post is like that. And you're talking about what allowed this post to go viral. Like, what are the signals that are causing Mm -hmm. it to go viral? And you're sitting there being like, I am the civic misinformation PM, and I'm seeing this misinformation, and I feel no faith that I can do anything to address it. Like, imagine living with that every day and having that just grind you down. And at this point, how did you feel about the work you were doing? I felt it was incredibly essential. Like, I felt like it was a thing where we needed 200 people, not five people, four people working on this problem. And did you voice that to your manager? I did, totally. And the— response you got was make do with what you have. I was told that the expectation at Facebook is that you accomplish the impossible with far less resources than anyone would expect. Facebook spokesman told us, quote, every day our teams have to balance protecting the right of billions of people to express themselves openly with the need to keep our platform a safe and positive place. Did you start to get frustrated? Yeah, it was extremely frustrating. One of the most painful things a person can experience is living with a secret with intense consequences. So here I was inside of Facebook. I thought I was well-informed before I joined Facebook about misinformation. Now I know that the problem is way, way worse than anyone outside knows. And I'm staffed with a team that I have no faith can actually address this problem. And I know that no one outside knows these things. So I'm walking around holding this information, trying really hard, and basically living kind of an archetypical Facebook experience, which is there are many incredibly conscientious people who come in, learn what's actually happening at Facebook, and push themselves almost to the point of burnout because they know that they know what's going on. And once they leave, they won't be able to help with the problem. And I remember the the incredible anxiety I felt. Like, by six months in, I had learned so much about the consequences of the problem and felt so powerless to actually make progress on it that I was, like, starting to have panic attacks. Frances says her anxiety kept building through the campaign season of 2020. And eventually, 
she hit a breaking point. My inflection moment where I was like, oh, like, I'm going to need to probably tell someone was when they got rid of civic integrity. In December, Facebook announced it was shutting down the team Francis had been working on, the civic integrity team. The plan was to reassign those employees to other parts of the company. It was not entirely a surprise because I had heard rumors that it was coming. I was also not that surprised because, like, civic integrity was viewed with a lot of suspicion inside of the company because, one, they did keep uncovering things that I think Facebook didn't want people to document. And I think civic integrity was a problem for Facebook because they asked awkward questions and answered them. What did it say to you that Facebook was dismantling the civic integrity team? When I found out that the team was being dismantled when they announced it, it was such a, a breach of trust, like the idea that Facebook could have so much information about what it is, its impact was and then dismantle the team. Facebook declined to comment on the reorganization. A few weeks after the civic integrity team yeah. was disbanded, yep. there were the Capitol riots. Yes. What was that moment like in Facebook? Facebook turned off all sorts of protections that it had turned on for the 2020 election, right after the election. And the reason they turned off those protections, so these are things around, like, how reactive is the platform? Like, is it viral? Those things about ranking, right? Like, some of those signals that make it easier for angry things to go out, they got tamped down a little bit for the election because they didn't want to have riots at the election. But all those things make Facebook grow a little slower, And so they turned off all those safety mechanisms after, or they went back to their old settings after the election. And the insurrection happens, and immediately they throw them back on. And how are you seeing this information? Oh, it's because, like, it's just flowing freely across our internal version of Facebook. It's called Workplace. People were putting up reports of, like, what was happening. Like, I could see, like, there's literally a report. They're called Break the Glass Measures. And, like, literally when the insurrection happened, like, there was a document I saw where it listed, here are all these break-the-glass measures that we had on for the election to keep it safe. And as soon as the election passed, we turned them off, and now we're turning them back on because clearly things have gone off the rails. So Facebook knew that there were dangerous trade-offs they were making before the election, which is why they chose safer choices for the election. And as soon as they had passed that moment, they get rid of civic integrity, they turn off these things that would make Facebook grow slower. And as a result, like, there was documentation that a lot of the Stop the Steal groups and all those things, they grew so fast because of choices Facebook made to prioritize growth over safety. And after the Capitol riots, there was pressure on Facebook to suspend then-President Donald Trump's account. Do you remember what that was like inside the company? Uh, It was very contentious. And the fact that you literally had to have an insurrection and people storming the Capitol and going into political leaders' offices with guns for Facebook to take the person who instigated those things off the platform. If that's our bar, Facebook is basically saying, we will let societies destabilize to the point of rioting and then we'll step in. We're not going to slowly turn the heat down as it starts to get warmer. We're going to let the pot boil over and then we'll do something. Facebook spokesman said, quote, the notion that the January 6th insurrection would not have happened but for Facebook is absurd. He said the responsibility for the violence that occurred that day lies with those who attacked the Capitol and those who encouraged them. 
Frances says that the 2020 election and its aftermath left her feeling like she needed to do something. So she turned to her mother for guidance. I lived with my parents for a lot of 2020 because it was COVID, so I had lots and lots of time to talk to my parents about what I was feeling. And my mother is an amazing resource because, um, so she was a professor, tenured professor for years, decades and decades. And in her 50s, she became an Episcopal priest. And so if you are struggling with a crisis of conscience, it's really useful to live with a priest. (laughs) (laughs) And you were struggling with a crisis of conscience. I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like, oh, my God, we are failing democracy on a really basic level. I never saw Facebook's willingness to invest at the level they needed to invest to solve these problems. Like, there are thousands of people in places like Russia and China and Iran whose jobs is to inject misinformation into the United States. And there's less than 200 people in the entire company working on anything even slightly related to this. And what did she say to you? And she told me to follow my heart, that that if I believed people's lives were on the line, that I should do what I viewed was the most likely thing to save those lives. And she told me no matter what I did, she would support me. And what are the choices here? So I have kind of three choices. One is I can stay at Facebook and keep grinding and doing, you know, 70-hour weeks and not seeing the progress that I think is essential. I can quit and go do something else. And the third option is I can let everyone else know. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Workday. Get the whole band together with Workday and pair finance and HR on one platform for an epic performance. With Workday AI at the core, you'll make confident decisions faster than ever. And you'll drive flawless business and finance operations with an agile platform that constantly evolves to future-proof your organization. Be a finance and HR rock star with Workday. Visit Workday.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI enables rapid access to secure, traceable, hallucination-free insights from enterprise systems, all while using any LLM, helping enterprises turn the invisible into the obvious. Learn more at C3.ai. After talking with her mother and thinking about her options, Frances decided she was going to publicly reveal what she had learned inside Facebook. That's when she reached out to our colleague, Jeff Horowitz. So the first time Jeff and I hung out, I had been told by my friends who worked in security that I should assume my devices are bugged. I didn't know what level of paranoia to have, so I left my phone in the car. So he and I went for a walk out in the woods. It was beautiful. And we literally sat on a picnic blanket, like slightly off the trail, like under the trees. And this is kind of like a job interview in some ways, right? Like I I wanted to see what he felt about certain issues. Like I wanted to know, did he care about what was happening in other countries? Because I could see like the ethnic violence issue and the risk of ethnic violence at that point was like the thing that I worried the most about. And I knew that some media outlets didn't care as much about those issues. So he was checking those boxes. And I like knew that I needed him to believe that I knew what I was talking about. And so we're just sitting there kind of feeling each other out. Like, is this someone that I want to invest a lot of time explaining things to? Like, do I trust that he's going to do a good job, a rigorous job? 
Francis decided to trust him. Internal Facebook documents that she gathered ultimately went to Congress, the SEC, and Jeff. What were you hoping to achieve? What was I hoping to achieve? So the thing I wanted was for the public to have enough information that they could make choices on what laws to have to regulate Facebook. What are the regulations that you want to see? I think there's like different tiers of interventions that I think are necessary. At a minimum, we need radically more transparency. And we need to, as a society, think about how can we not be dependent on whistleblowers like me to get basic information out of the company? You know, Facebook has told us you can either have growth or engagement. You know, if we make it safer, it won't be as engaging. And now we actually have numbers saying, guess what? Facebook is trading off very small decreases in engagement for huge consequences in misinformation, in hate speech, in violence incitement. And so now we have those things documented. Like there are many internal documents that talk about the idea that the trade-offs that people are willing to accept, like if you had to decide between 1% fewer sessions and 10 or 20% more misinformation, Facebook is consistently saying 1% of sessions is worth 10% misinformation. The second thing is we need to have different regulations on engagement-based ranking. Engagement-based ranking is always going to prioritize the sensational. It's always going to prioritize misinformation. And we need to take interventions to reduce virality, to make things less growth-optimized. Because we could have social media that was about our family and friends that we really enjoyed, that was less toxic. It's just Facebook would grow slower. People would spend shorter sessions on Facebook. Facebook would make less money. And so we have to regulate it to get that world. Facebook spokesman said the company's incentive is to provide, quote, a safe, positive experience for the billions of people who use Facebook. That's why we've invested so heavily in safety and security. And, quote, to suggest we encourage bad content and do nothing is just not true. If you could implement one change at Facebook, what would it be and why? Ooh, magic bullets are always dangerous because they don't exist. <laughs> um, let me think. One change. So if I could only do one thing, I would improve transparency. Because if Facebook had to publish public data feeds, you know, daily on, you know, the most viral content, how much of the content people see is coming from groups, how much hate speech is there? Like, if all this data was transparent and public— You'd have YouTubers who would analyze this data and explain it to people. Do you think Facebook should be broken up? When people ask me, should we break up Facebook? I say definitively do not break up Facebook. All you will do is starve the individual parts of resources. And instead of being able to collaborate across those companies to figure out strategies to solve problems, you will divide up the teams and make them less capable. One of the things I really, really want to emphasize is that a lot of the problems that are outlined here are not Facebook problems. They are problems with engagement-based ranking. That when we allow algorithms, when we allow AI to choose what we get to see and don't see, we need that same kind of system for all social media companies. Because that's the only way we're going to get systems that are even minimally safe enough. Think of how many people work on regulating cars. Like, I don't even know what the number is. Imagine if there were 100 people who were paid by the public or half paid by the public and half by Facebook, who were embedded inside of Facebook, who could ask these questions themselves, 
like the Fed with banking. With banking, we do this for bank. Oh my goodness, we don't let banks run themselves. The Federal Reserve of Algorithms. The Federal Reserve of Algorithms, algorithmic governance. We need more thinking on algorithmic governance. I'm on Facebook. Totally. Because my son has a medical condition. Mm. And there's a group of parents who found each other on Facebook. And they came up with a way to use medical devices Mm. together that would uh, improve patient outcomes. Oh, cool. It would not have existed without Facebook. Yeah, totally. Ugh, amazing. (laughs) I love open source. I love open open source medical things. Um, Yeah. So I love, I love when people think that solutions are either or solutions. I love it. Because then you can step in and say, guess what? We're having an argument about A or B. Guess what? There is C, D, and E. Like, we don't need to have this be an either-or conversation. So I think that's a great example. So let's take a step back and imagine what Facebook could look like if it was safer. Like, I'm not asking you to give up your amazing open-source medical devices group because I agree with you. Those things change the world. But what I am saying is, you know, instead of having a product where you have, you know, a group with 500,000 people in it, And every day, that group makes a 1,000 posts. And we're going to trust the AI to pick three posts from that group and put them in your newsfeed. We know the solution, what happens in that world. The algorithms, because they are juiced by engagement, end up picking the most extreme posts out of that 1,000 posts each day. So let's imagine a different world. So in a world where we design social media such that it's less reliant on algorithms to pick what we should focus on, normal social interactions will regulate what we talk about. And we should have humans, through our conversations, our normal interactions, be the things that are choosing what we focus on, not machines. Humans over machines. Like if you and I were having a conversation and I kept talking about the same thing over and over again, at some point you're going to walk away from me. Right? If I bring up at Thanksgiving dinner too many times some crazy conspiracy theory, you're going to be like, hey, we've talked about that long enough. Let's move on. But algorithms will say, ooh, people engage with this topic the most. Let's show it to you more. And that's actually part of the danger for, like, teenagers, right? Like, part of the reason why these teen girls are getting eating disorders is they one time look up weight loss, and the algorithm's like, oh, great. We'll keep showing you more and more extreme weight loss things. In response to our story about Instagram, Mm -hmm. Instagram head Adam Masseri said making fixes could make things worse unintentionally. Do you say what those fixes are? Well, they're working on some fixes that yeah. he told us about. But, you know, it was sort of yeah. cautionary. Like, yeah. you can be prescriptive out there in the wild. Yeah. But what you are ordering up could end up hurting this mm-hmm. product. So let's take a step back. Part of the reason why Facebook has made lots of these choices is because they know for each one of these choices, people engaged with the product a little bit more. And so, yeah, if you got rid of a bunch of these growth hacks— Facebook might be 10%, quote, less enjoyable, i.e. you might consume 10% less content on it. But the content you consume, you might enjoy more because like parts, it's kind of like fast food. They've been feeding us French fries and, oh, French fries are delicious. So good. good. Talk about a perfectly designed product. So like if, if you ate, you know, instead of having your entire diet be French fries, it was like half French fries or 10% French fries. Yeah, you'd eat less, but you'd probably also feel better. And this comes back again to why I said, like, if I could only choose to fix one thing, the thing I would fix is transparency. When Adam Masseri waves his hands and says some things might be worse, who gets to define the yardstick? Imagine if there was like 100 people who got to define the yardstick. 
instead of Adam Asseri saying it might be worse for people. Frances resigned from Facebook in May. She's moved away from California and is now focused on other tech projects and on working with lawmakers to regulate social media. How do you feel about Facebook now? You've released these documents. You have mm-hmm. strong feelings yeah. about the company. Do you hate Facebook? Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, a thing that I, I want people to remember is, like, to do this project, I had to do a lot of work. Like, to document the things I documented at the level I documented, it took a lot of work. And you can't do those things if you're driven by hate, because hate burns you out. If I could work at Facebook again, I would work at Facebook again, because I think the most important work in the world is happening at Facebook, because we have to figure out how to make social media safer. Some people at Facebook may see your decision to release these documents as betrayal. Oh, I I totally can. I I know that's going to happen. What do you say to them? I totally see how they could come from that perspective. And all I want them to know is that one of the most important things I learned at Facebook, so I I had a manager who was amazing. He's like a role model for who I want to be as a leader, right? And at some point, I was working on some problem, and I ran into a roadblock, and I got delayed. Like, I was like a week late to give him something I I promised to him. And he said to me, I'm really disappointed in you, because if you had told me you were struggling with this, we could have solved this problem together. Like, it is better to solve problems together than solve them alone. I want the employees at Facebook to know that I did this because I really believe that solving problems together is better solving them alone. And that Facebook has been struggling because a lot of the problems it needs to solve are about conflicts of interest, right? Conflicts of interest between public safety and profits and growth. And those are problems that Facebook cannot solve alone. And that once it starts solving those problems together, it'll be so much more constructive and the path forward will be so much easier. Well, thanks yeah. so much, Francis. Yeah, my pleasure. I appreciate you taking all this time. In an internal message sent to Facebook staff and leaked to the media, a Facebook executive said the company will continue to face scrutiny, some of it fair and some of it unfair. But he said, quote, We should also continue to hold our heads up high. You and your teams do incredible work. Our tools and products have a hugely positive impact on the world and in people's lives. This series is part of The Journal Podcast, a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Thanks to Jeff Horwitz and Brad Reagan for their help with this episode. Your hosts are Ryan Knudsen and me, Kate Leinbaugh. This series was produced by Pia Godkari, Max Green, and Martin Kessler, with production help from Enrique Perez de la Rosa and Willa Rubin. This episode was edited by Catherine Brewer and Annie Rose Strasser. Special thanks to Colin Campbell, Anthony Galloway, Lisa Kalis, Emma Moody, Lydia Polgreen, Matthew Rose, and Rob Rossi. Our engineers are Griffin Tanner and Nathan Singapak. Our theme music is by So Wiley and remixed by Peter Leonard. Additional music in this episode from Blue Dot Sessions. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasolka. And also, thanks to the whole journal team. Priscilla Alabi, Sam Baer, Annie Minoff, Laura Morris, Afif Nasuli, Ricky Nevetsky, Sarah Platt, and Matthew Sherman.
Thanks for listening. See you Tuesday.